Listener note, this podcast was created as an adjunct for those studying for the PCS exam. By no means do we guarantee that one will pass the exam solely by listening to this podcast. We encourage all those studying for the exam to put the appropriate time and effort into their studying using resources recommended by the ABPTS and the APTA. It is not allowed to discuss test content and we will not accept any questions related to test content. While we will do our best to provide the most accurate information, if you feel as though we have stated something that is incorrect, please contact us via Instagram at Pushing Pediatrics. Hi, I'm Sheila. And I'm Sarah. And welcome to Pushing Pediatrics, an educational podcast for physical therapists created to help those studying for the Pediatric Certified Specialist exam and anyone else interested in learning more about pediatric physical therapy. We have been going strong since September, and we wanted to step back and just regroup a bit. Plus, we had an extra week we missed in our scheduling, so we're sorry about that. We are so glad that this has been a resource that you have felt useful in your studying for the few people who have reached out and told us so. We want to keep bringing you content for all of your commuting and multitasking needs. Just a quick plug. If you really feel like this is a good resource, share it with others. If you feel like it is a great resource, leave us a review. And if you feel like it's a vital resource, feel free to support us through our link on Instagram. We both do this in our not so spare time after working and family needs. We love the additional review we get, but we would also love to keep the episodes coming for future years as well. So if you feel inclined, send us some love. We wanted to address some common questions we have been asked and just to help you all get settled in the final push until test time. You should be settling into a good, solid study schedule now. Remember, consistency compounds. The more consistent you can be, the more prepared you will feel, especially when small things derail you for a few days. You will be able to dust yourself off and get back quickly because of your consistency. You've got this. We had a specific request to discuss the extra chapters we had previously mentioned, not specifically in Campbell's fifth edition. I have the third edition from my PT school days. So to be clear, I graduated in 2008 from PT school. So this information may likely be a bit dated. From the third edition, there were three condition chapters not in the fifth edition. Those are genetic syndromes affecting movement, hemophilia, and the burn unit. There is also a medical legal chapter in this edition that I think had a few good case studies for abuse and neglect that may supplement the fact sheet that we had previously discussed. I also think the assistive technology chapter has some additional helpful information. That being said, I would not go out and purchase this book solely for these additional chapters but I would seek resources online to make sure you know burn staging and treatment techniques, hemophilia features and precautions, and common genetic syndromes seen in the clinic. There are some good quizlets that others have created for genetic syndromes, so I would definitely seek those out to help you identify some of the common features. Eventually, we want to get these chapters into episodes, but there is so much to cover from the current Campbell, we might have to save that content for another season. 
Another topic frequently brought up is practice exams. Practice exams are a great way to get into the mindset of the critical thinking process. For us, it had been a long time since we had taken a formal exam. The two main sources of practice exams are MedBridge and the PCS Advantage program. Both offer multiple exams of varying length and are both valuable. I personally felt that the MedBridge tests were geared for the MedBridge content. So some of the questions were the same or similar to the learner comprehension questions you see during the modules. If you did the modules and paid attention, these questions felt easy because you had seen them before. The PCS Advantage tests felt more test preparatory because the questions were all completely new. Also, they really try and model their exams off the breakdown given for the real test. Circle back and listen to that episode we have with them. Helen and Jessica talk a little bit about creating the content in the practice exams. They also have a full case-based exam, which we really think is a helpful format for test prep. The Case Files book also has questions at the end of each chapter. We compiled those into a document, and I took that in the week leading up to the test because it had been some time since I had seen the questions, and those questions also had a very case-based feel to them. I did the same thing as Sheila, and I felt like that was very helpful. I took it very similarly to the case-based exam um, from PCS Advantage. One question we received was regarding our personal caseloads and workloads while studying for the exam. I can answer for myself in that I was working full-time in a school and also working my part-time job as a personal trainer and group exercise instructor. At my full-time job, I was seeing eight to nine kids a day with an hour at the beginning and end of the day for paperwork time. I worked roughly eight to four and then would go to my part-time job from 4.30 to six and then I worked Saturday mornings from 9 to 12. I worked the schedule until January, and then I stopped working on Saturdays and only worked Mondays and Wednesdays after work rather than Monday through Thursday. For my life, it was best for me to study for long durations, six to eight hours, on the weekends. During the week, I studied two days a week for at least two to three hours after work and for an hour on Mondays and Wednesdays. I almost always took Fridays off of studying. Initially, when I started studying, I was not working due to COVID, but I had an infant and a toddler at home, so I was only studying at night after bedtime. The fall before my test year, I went back to work part-time. I worked two to three days per week and had the other two days to study almost all day. Due to having young children, I was not able to utilize my weekends as mass study time because I wanted to spend time with my husband and my kids. I used the concept of consistency. I studied every night from 6.30 to 8.30 like clockwork, only taking off Saturday nights to rest and recharge. I also used nap times on the weekends, and I had most of Tuesdays and Thursdays to study. Also, please refer to episode six, where we go over how we created and executed our personal study plans. We had another question about what we would do differently if we were to study for the test again. I personally feel like I wouldn't do anything different. I felt confident but nervous going into the exam. I was passing all of the practice exams and continuing to do well, so I felt very prepared. The one thing that I do wish I utilized more are the clinical summaries, the APTA fact sheets, and the expert consult that came with the Campbell book. 
I was probably more nervous going into the exam, which is interesting because I also passed every single practice exam, even the one I took before I started studying at all. So ultimately, I think what we did to prepare was obviously adequate. I do feel like my personal wish is that I probably would have done the research and statistics a little bit more because I wanted to feel confident with those questions. I don't feel like I had a great confidence going in. And I think that a little bit more review could have helped me feel confident with those. And also of note as well, both Sheila and I thought that we failed the exam when we came out of it. Both of us started planning when we would need to start studying to try to pass it for the next year. So if you come out of the exam feeling like this, just know that Sheila and I were right there with you. Yep, definitely. I definitely, I actually had even put another clinical research book in my Amazon cart because I was ready to, to hit the research really hard um, before I got back into my full test prep. All right, let's talk briefly about those clinical summaries that Sarah mentioned a little bit earlier. The clinical summaries are available on the APTA website. All you need to do is type clinical summaries APTA into Google, and you'll find the website right there. There are many, many, many clinical summaries with only a few being specific to pediatrics. So the ones that we utilized were autism, brachial plexus, cerebral palsy, concussion, Down syndrome, muscular dystrophy, spina bifida, and the spinal cord injury. These are very thorough and they have a lot of great information and they're definitely helpful to look at. I really feel like anything the APTA is putting out is probably worth looking at for an exam for a specialty certification. I definitely agree. And I felt like these clinical summaries were very helpful. Um, I wish I had found them earlier, like I said before, because I probably would have either organized them into a file or printed them out and just read through all of them, highlighted them, because they had some fantastic information. The one that sticks out to me the most was the Down syndrome clinical summaries. I felt like it was just very well written and had a lot of really valuable information. And isn't covered very well in the book, to be perfectly honest. Like I don't, for a, a condition that we see so, so, so much in the clinic, I'm surprised at how little it's covered in Campbell. I would also say the same thing for both autism and concussion. Neither are covered really extensively in Campbell at all and definitely are a huge part of our caseload and definitely a huge part of being a pediatric specialist. So I think that's probably one of your best resources for those conditions that aren't really covered in Campbell. And again, like Sheila said, anything that the APTA puts out, you can know it's reputable and well-researched as well. And probably an area where they're going to look for test questions. Moving on to another question, bell curves. What did we study and how did we use them? So let's talk strict definition here. A bell curve is a common type of distribution for a variable, also known as the normal distribution. Envision the bell curve for a second. The highest point of the curve or the top of the bell represents the most probable event in a series of data, meaning it's the mean, mode, and median while all the other possible occurrences are symmetrically distributed around the mean, creating a downward sloping curve on each side of the peak. The width of the bell curve is described by its standard deviation. Standard deviation is the most commonly used measure of variability. 
I would definitely have a bell curve with the percentiles, Z-scores, and T-scores on the bottom of it in your study materials. We will post that on our Instagram page this week. I think being able to use the bell curve to determine a Z-score or a percentile rank would be a good way to practice using the bell curve. For example, if a child scores a 65 for a standard score, the mean is 100 and the standard deviation is 15, keep in mind that you're going to be given this information or some combination of this information. You're going to use the equation of standard score minus the mean divided by the standard deviation, and you're going to get your Z-score. In this case, I described it's minus 2.33, which puts the score right around the first percentile. I stole this example from the advanced practice course if it feels similar to some of you. But basically, think about when you score a standardized test in the clinic. This is essentially plotting the child's performance on a bell curve. You do it all the time, so don't overthink it. We also received a question about lab values. There are some study materials related to lab values that can feel daunting for sure. We're we looking at like you, PCS Advantage. <laughs> we feel like understanding certain lab values related to a diagnosis is probably the best way to approach lab values. For example, we know with muscular dystrophy, creatine kinase levels will be significantly elevated. That is useful information and something you can memorize by relating back to a specific diagnosis. Also, knowing the lab values related to chemotherapy and exercise recommendations are another practical and important set of values to know. We did post this on our Instagram a few weeks ago, so head to our page and go check out that post. We feel it is also important to know physiological value parameters such as heart rate, blood pressure, et cetera. We don't feel you need to go crazy specific here. They change every few months in infant development, but know what a normal trend is. Understanding when lab values are not appropriate to move forward with a treatment session is a reasonable thing to expect. We also think having an understanding of blood sugar levels related to diabetes may also be some numbers worth knowing as that becomes a more prevalent issue in our clinics and schools. It's easy to get caught up in some of the minutia of all of these lab values, etc. But I'm going to be very honest with you. If you do not yet have the torticollis severity grades memorized or the GMFCS levels memorized, you're focusing on the wrong stuff if you're worried about specific lab values. Make sure you have the big stuff memorized before stressing yourself about these specifics. I'm not saying there's not value in knowing them, but I think keeping the big picture in mind is something to be thoughtful of. Definitely agree with Sheila on this one. I think once you start, if you haven't already, start taking practice exams, you're going to see that in the practice exams, you may get a few lab values questions sprinkled throughout, but the vast majority of the test is on those big picture topics that we've kind of gone over and that is in Campbell and all of that. So like she said, don't stress about some of those little details. Make sure you're understanding that big picture still. Yeah, the big diagnoses, the big things 
that we talk about all the time. That's what's important. And again, once you have all of that, then you can start worrying about some of these more specifics. And again, I think that it's important to know some really overarching concepts of lab values and knowing kind of the concept of the bell curve and what it's used for. But again, sitting there and, and worrying and memorizing every last liver function test that can be memorized is probably leading you to miss out on some other really important stuff. And I think also too, that's why the practice exams are so important and kind of taking them throughout your study process too, because it helps to kind of gear your studying a little bit. So if you are focusing too much on some of these little things, you're not going to get those big questions correct on the practice exams. So they can kind of help you say, okay, what are the things that I actually am studying that are being asked on these practice exams? And what are some things that I'm not studying that are not going to be asked at all? You will, on the exam, whether it's the practice exam or the real exam, you are going to get questions that you're like, I've never seen this before in my life. I have no idea what it is. But if you have one question out of the 200 that is like that, and the rest of the 199 are things that you have seen or you definitely know, that's what matters. You can't just worry about that one specific question with that specific lab value that you didn't look at or didn't study. You need to look at those big picture topics yeah. and diagnoses. Because I'm almost positive, I doubt anyone's getting a perfect score on this exam ever. So I think being perfect isn't the answer here. It's knowing most of the information and knowing that some of these things that you're just going to get wrong. And we always talk about this. I think we've talked about it before, but there's value in getting questions wrong on practice exams. Those were the things that taught me what I really needed to do and go back and study. And I think that that's a really important concept because both Sarah and I got a lot of knowledge translation problems wrong on the exams. That was exactly where out. my mind went, was the knowledge translation cycle. You know, you figure out some of the things that you consistently keep getting wrong and you know you got to go back and, and focus on that. So we're here to help you guys. We're here to answer more questions as they come up and as you're really getting into the grind of studying. Keep asking us questions. Keep trying to think of of ways that you want to learn things and ways that you want to do things and hear things from us because we're we're here to help. So keep us updated over the next couple of months. We're excited for your last few months before the exam and we're excited to be a part of your journey. Thank you all so much for listening to Pushing Pediatrics. You can follow us on Instagram at Pushing Pediatrics. We would love to hear from you. So send us questions, suggestions, things you want to hear more of, and things you'd maybe want to hear less of. We will talk to you guys next week. And remember, you totally got this.